Let's pray together this morning. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. Lord, to receive instruction from this book and to receive instruction through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this morning, God, as we study your word, that we may be transformed into the person that you desire us to be. Lord, I thank you for these brothers and sisters who are gathered here who are committed to your word, committed to hearing from you. And Father, not just committed to hearing, being hearers of the word, but to being doers as well. Father, but help us each and every week to do that, to not just take what we learn here and to file it away somewhere as knowledge, but to put it into practical application in our everyday lives. Lord, we confess that this week, Lord, we have done things that we should not have done, and Father, we have not done things that we should have done. And Lord, we confess our sins before you this morning, grateful that your mercies are new every day, grateful that you have provided forgiveness for us through your Son, Jesus Christ, and grateful that this morning we stand before you, not as guilty sinners, but as individuals who have been clothed in the very righteousness of your Son. Help us this morning, God, to push aside all the distractions of this world, to focus on you and upon your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Since you have your copy of God's word, let's turn together uh, to Matthew chapter 17. Uh, Matthew chapter 17. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21. Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 21. If you found your way there, let's stand together as we read God's Word. Scripture says, When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and very ill, and he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for, to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. You can be seated. Last week we looked at this profound text of, of the transfiguration of Jesus as Jesus took Peter, James, and John and went up on the mount. And while they were there, Jesus revealed uh, as much as he could, as much as they could stand, his glory to them. And then there were Moses and Elijah alongside of them. And then the Shekinah glory of the Lord came down and spoke uh, to Peter, James, and John and told them, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So this powerful moment is happening. You know, Jesus is here and, and again being confirmed by the Father as the Messiah. The disciples are witnessing all this amazing action. But while all this wonderful thing is taking place on top of the mountain, something polar opposite is happening down in the valley below. Three disciples have gone up with Jesus. That leaves nine disciples there in the valley below. And while they're gone up on the mountain, 
A crowd has gathered around there with the other disciples, and, and in particular, one man has brought his son to Jesus. And in the midst of this, uh, this son has been possessed by a demon. He's suffering from a, both a spiritual and a physical condition. And so as soon as Jesus comes up off the mountain from this powerful experience in the very presence of God, he's right back into the heat of the battle against Satan and his forces here upon the earth. Now, the, the other gospel writers give us a little more detail about exactly what was happening in this moment as Jesus come back, came back down. And in fact, Mark tells us that as they come back down off the mountain, there was a large crowd and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately as the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. Now, we can only imagine the argument that the scribes were having with these other disciples. Many commentators no doubt believe that this argument was the scribes giving the other disciples a hard time because, as this man would say later on, I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And so, no doubt, the scribes were saying, oh yeah, you know, this Jesus that you serve, he, he, he must be so great, except here, here you are, his disciples, and you can't do anything about this man uh, who has brought to you his son. So Jesus here is in this pinnacle moment and very quickly brought back down into this battle against the forces of evil itself. The first thing that I want you to notice in this text is the father's despair. So it says as they come back to this crowd, again picture this, the Jesus and these uh, Peter, James, and John walking down off the mountain. Again, we, we talked last week about why oftentimes in the Christian world we talk about a mountaintop experience. It's because anytime we see a mountaintop experience in the Scriptures, it usually refers to this moment where somebody meets with God or has this connection with God, and it's this very high spiritual moment. So they come off of this mountaintop experience, and they're, I mean, they're just rejoicing, right? I mean, they've seen something tremendous, and now this has all been confirmed firm to them, and they come back down off into the mountain into this argument taking place. And immediately this man runs up to Jesus, he says, falls on his knees before him and says, Lord, have mercy on my son. Now, as this man falls down before Jesus, he uses the word Lord. Now, we oftentimes would assume and read into that fact that he's calling Jesus his Messiah, but Lord was a title of respect. It was not necessarily a recognition of Jesus uh, as the Messiah, but obviously this man had either witnessed with his own eyes the miracle-working power of Jesus, or he had heard it firsthand, right? Somebody else had seen Jesus performing these miracles. So when this man began to realize, okay, my son has experienced this condition, and there's one person who can make a change in my son's life. Now, he didn't know anything else. But the only thing that he knew was the only hope that he had was in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ alone was his hope and his remedy. So he comes before him and he falls down in this state of humility and humbleness and saying, Jesus, I'm coming before you. He calls him Lord, Master, Teacher. I need your help. I'm desperate for you to have mercy upon my son. As I read through this text this week, I I notice there's, there's really a lot of parallels that you can draw from this because it's very easy to just look at the miraculous event of this story of this young boy being healed from this demon and from this seizure condition and just kind of walk away from it at that. But there's so much more to see here about the desperation of the father and the condition of his son. And the understanding that in a condition such as this, that the only hope is found in Christ alone. Because no doubt, we're going to talk in just a minute, this son's condition was very desperate. It was very tragic. It was, it was very dangerous, not only to his physical health, but also his mental health. 
But if we think about the condition of our own lives and spiritually before God, the condition that all of us find ourselves in before Christ is far more deadly than a condition of seizures. It's far more deadly than a condition that that would cause these types of things to happen. At the end of this text, you're going to find the overarching theme of everything that Jesus is trying to instruct his disciples about in this moment is the power of prayer and faith. And as I began to study that this week, and I kept looking back over this text, I was just drawn to this idea of like, how much do we really believe in the power of prayer and faith? And I look at this man. This man was humble before the Lord because he knew that the Lord was his only hope. He was brought to this condition because he knew that Jesus was the only one who could solve the situation that he was in. Which leads us to ask this question to ourselves this morning. Are we in that place in our own personal lives? Do we understand that Christ is our only hope? First off, he's our only hope for salvation. But let's be honest with ourselves this morning. The only hope that we have to endure in this life is in Christ alone. And if we're not humbled before Him, recognizing Him as our only source of power and strength, then we will not be able to succeed in this life. There are moments in the life of a parent where the only hope for a son or a daughter is found in the precious promises of who Christ is. And that's where this man found himself. He was a man humble, but he was also a man who was desperate. The condition of his son had driven him to this state. He was in a state of full on desperation. If you have a King James Version this morning, you're reading that, you'll notice that the word is used there is, is the, that word uh, lunatic and, and oftentimes is translated as, as being moonstruck. And what that means is at the common belief in the time of Jesus was that conditions such as this young man had were caused by the changing of the cycles of the moon. Now, they had really no other way to explain it. They had no scientific understanding of, of epilepsy or seizure conditions, and so they thought that the cycles of the moon caused these type of conditions to happen. It also mentions in the text that not only did he have this epileptic condition, but he also was possessed with a demon. So this young man had a spiritual perspective and a medical perspective of this condition that he was experiencing. The spiritual was the demonic possession, and the medical was the epilepsy. Uh, one perhaps being caused by the other, that it was the demon causing this condition to happen. And so whatever, how, however the two of those were coinciding inside of this young man, the condition was that he was experiencing some very tragic things in his life. Notice what the father says in verse 15. He says, he often file, falls into the fire and often into the water. Now, again, in the time when Jesus lives, it's very different than the time in which we live. As you're walking down the street, there's not often many times you come past an open fire on the side of the road. But in the time in which Jesus lives, it's a very common practice. Everybody would have a fire outside their house where they were cooking or doing other things. All open pits of water that you used for irrigation and things like that. So at any point in time during the day, as they're walking through town, this young man could be brought upon with a seizure which caused him to fall into a fire, caused him to fall into the water and almost drown. And in fact, Mark goes into even more detail. And the man says, Teacher, I brought to you my son possessed with the spirit which makes him mute so he could not even speak when this condition happened. It says, and whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he stiffens out. 
He goes on just a little bit later to say, uh, Jesus asked him, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. So you understand, if you're a parent in the room, you understand the desperation that this father has. That from childhood, his son has been, has been beset with this condition which causes all of these things to happen. And as a parent, one of the things that you do is you're always watching out to try to keep your kids from getting hurt. Right? You, you tell them, don't touch that pot on the stove. It will burn you. Don't pull on that thing. It could fall over on you and hurt you. But the condition that this young boy has here, there's nothing that the father can do. He has to just stand back, helpless, as he watches his son go through this condition that causes him pain and causes him agony and sometimes puts him in situations that unchecked could also bring death. I remember as a first responder, the very first time that I witnessed someone having a seizure. And it's a very disconcerting feeling because you can't do anything. The only thing you can do is try to prevent that person from hurting themselves as they're seizing. You know, keep them from falling or keep them from, you know, knocking into something. But there's nothing you can do as an individual person on the field or away from a hospital to, to, to actively stop that person from having a seizure. You just have to just stand there and watch. So you can easily understand the desperation of this father. He's watched his son over and over and over experience this. And so he comes to Jesus pleading. He comes to Jesus asking, Father, do something. Lord, do something. Have mercy upon my son. H.A. Ironside says, Parents are doubly concerned to pray for their children, not only those that are weak and cannot, but much more they that are wicked and will not pray for themselves. Because here we find and understand this very clear parallel. This young man was vexed with this condition that caused him to seize and caused him to experience all of this difficult difficulty. And his father was desperately praying for the Lord to have mercy on him. But some of you in this room today may have children or grandchildren or family members who the condition that vexes their life is not a condition of spiritual uh, seizures or demonic possession, but they are far from God. And they are in a place where they need the mercy of the Lord upon their lives to bring them to Himself. And so then the question is for us, are we desperate for those around us who need a touch from the Lord? I'll be honest, the Lord convicted me this week in preparing this text on how often I am not desperate enough in my prayers and in my pleadings to Him. How often I am not believing enough in faith that God will do what He says that He will do. So this man is desperate, but he's also a man who's disappointed. Because he says to Jesus in verse 16, I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. Now remember what Jesus had commanded his disciples to do earlier in Matthew? He sent them out in pairs and what were they to do? They were to heal the sick and they were to cast out demons, and they were to do miracles on his behalf, and they did that. They went out and performed all these miracles. It was verified. It was seen by all these people. But here, in this moment, this man brings his son to to the disciples, and they could not heal him. So this man is, is disappointed. He's discouraged. 
No doubt as he saw the disciples gathered there and he recognized them as associates of Jesus, he thought, okay, this situation's solved. I've made it this far. Surely these men will be able to help my son. And so he comes in and he asks them and they try and they cannot do it. And so by the time Jesus comes down off the mountain, this man is discouraged. And, and really it causes him to have these struggles. Because he believed. He believed that Jesus and the disciples would be able to do something. But once the disciples were not able to do it, now he is struggling. And in fact, Mark tells us in, in chapter 9 that he says to Jesus, But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now, we know that he believed in the power of Jesus because he made it to this moment, but because of his discouragement, now he says, Jesus, if you can, could you do something? And Jesus responds to him and says, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. So this man was discouraged and disappointed. He was struggling in his faith. And in fact, he tells Jesus that. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So we find this man now who's waiting to see what the Lord is going to do. He's waiting to see. Now that he has, he has expressed his, his humility before the Lord, his desperation before the Lord, he, and, and really just confessed his struggles before the Lord. Lord, I don't know, I don't know what to do in this situation. I, I want to believe, and I believe that you can, but at this moment, I, I don't know what else to do. And sometimes that's what we have to do before the Lord. We have to confess our struggles. He already knows our struggles. He already knows our weaknesses. He already knows our discouragements. But sometimes it's good just before to go and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I know you can do this. I know you can heal this person. I know you can solve this situation in my family. I know you can solve this situation at my job. I know you can solve this other thing that I'm going through. I believe that you can. I know that you have the power, but I'm struggling to really lay hold of that and believe that you're actually going to do it. Calvin said, Christ undoubtedly intended to teach us that the fullness of all the blessings has been given to us by the Father, and that every kind of assistance must be expected from Him alone in the same manner as we expect it from the hand of God. Only exercise, he says, a firm belief, and you will obtain. In what manner faith obtains anything, for we shall immediately see. Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. There's this element of faith and trusting and believing and knowing that God will fulfill His promises to us. The second thing I want you to notice in this text is the Savior's dismay. Because there's an interesting way in which Jesus responds here in this moment, un unlike what we typically see, because oftentimes when somebody would come to Jesus who was sick or who was demon-possessed, Jesus would heal them. And He's going to do that in this moment, but before He does that, He says something else. He says, And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be here with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. This verse is a reflection of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6, which says, Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. 
So Jesus here is, is frustrated. He's a frustrated Messiah in this moment. He's not angry, but he's frustrated. And he calls him. He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Generation is typically used of all those who are gathered around, those who would be hearing Jesus' voice. And this response was a frustration of how long it was taking his disciples to understand the truth of who he was. It was a frustration with the people who only wanted to come and receive the the fringe benefits of being around Jesus, to see the miracles and to see those kinds of healing events. And it was a frustration with the scribes and the Pharisees who all they wanted to do was nitpick and criticize everything that he did. He uses the word perverted there, and it's used differently than obviously we would use that terminology today. And it's, a, it's a perverse in the sense of it's a contorted or a distorted view of who he was and what he had come to do. In fact, Matthew Poole in his commentary says he calls them perverse because they had so often seen and experienced his power, yet their faith was not clear and strong. They'd been given all of these multiple opportunities. They had seen everything that Jesus had done in working miracles. They had heard his preaching over and over very clearly, expounding upon the truth of who God was and what God had sent him to do. So their unbelief was not caused by a lack of evidence as to who Christ was because there had been far more than enough evidence given to them. But it was just a neglect of seeing and believing what was right before their very eyes. And so Jesus was frustrated in this moment. He says, how long shall I be here with you? How long shall I put up with you? It's really this idea of how long do you have to have me here physically with you before you believe? I'm not going to be here forever. Guys, you've got to get to a place where I'm going to be gone and you're still going to believe and you're still going to be able to move forward and do the things that God has called you to do. Jesus knew his time here on this earth was limited. So he's frustrated here, but notice, even in the midst of this frustration, we still find Jesus giving a compassionate response. Because what does he say? He says, bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, talking of the demon, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Mark tells us that Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. Such a wonderful thing to see here. The compassion of Jesus in this very moment, right? Because here came this father who was desperate. Here came this father who was pleading with Jesus. Here was this son who was vexed with this condition of of a demonic possession, an epilepsy, who the disciples could not heal. But in this moment, Jesus speaks to this demon, casts it out. And as we've seen over and over again throughout the book of Matthew, when Jesus heals somebody, it's a complete and instant and total healing. Everything the Father had been asking for, Jesus accomplishes in this moment and totally heals and changes His Son. And what a powerful testimony this would have been for those who were gathered around. If this young man had been plagued with this condition since birth, no doubt his neighbors had watched him fall into the fire, watched him fall into the water, watched him convulse and seize upon the ground. 
And in this powerful exorcism of casting this demon out, this demon does not leave without yet one more time trying to torment this poor boy and leaves him in such a condition that everybody looks around and says, oh, well, Jesus has killed him. He's dead. I mean, this is really kind of what it looks like because it's just, he's laying here like a corpse. And then in that moment to see Jesus go over and pick him up and to get him up and to see him in complete and total health. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly where Jesus found each one of us. Serving the God of this world. Every single one of us in this room before Christ, we might not have been possessed by a demon as this young man were, but we were serving the devil. We were serving the spirit of this age. We were serving the kingdom of darkness. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins. This young man could do nothing to save himself. This young man could do nothing to bring life back into his body. This young man could do nothing to rid himself of the condition that he had. It was only by the power and the compassion of Jesus working upon his life. His father's desperation in coming and pleading with him and the Savior's compassion in reaching out his hand, commanding this demon to leave and healing and totally changing this young man's life. Those of us in this room who have been changed by the power of God know exactly what this means. That our lives have been transformed completely and totally. Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus doesn't save us halfway? Aren't you glad this morning that He doesn't save us three quarters of the way and just leave us to work the rest of it out? But He saves us completely and totally and fully. Because if Jesus had just saved this young man, just cast a little bit of the demon out of him, You know what would happen next week? It would have been twice as worse as it was before. And if God had only saved us halfway and left the rest up to us, as some people say and teach, you know what would happen? We'd just screw it all up. But Jesus' compassion is such that this young man was fully and totally and completely healed. The third thing I want you to see in this text is There's no other way to describe this but the disciples' dumbfoundedness. Look at verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? Mark tells us that they were gathered together in a house, and you can only imagine the frustration, the confusion, and the dumbfoundedness of the disciples, right? Because they've, they've seen Jesus performed these types of miracles. They themselves have performed these types of miracles. But yet in this moment, they couldn't do it. And so they, they pulled Jesus to the side to have this private conversation, and they asked him, why could we not drive it out? They don't know how to answer it. Because they know that Jesus has given them this power. They know that Jesus has given them this command to do these types of things. And so they do not know what to do. But the good thing is, is they go to the right source. They're going to the one who can answer the question. It's almost in this moment that you you almost kind of see a little glimmer of hope for the disciples, right? Right? Because they, they realize, okay, something has happened that we don't understand. So immediately they pull Jesus to the side and say, Jesus, explain this to us. Give us the understanding because we know what you've commanded us to do. We know what you've told us to do. We know what we're supposed to be doing. But we tried it and it didn't work. So tell us where we went wrong. 
And that's what we need to do as well. We need to be dependent upon the one who's instructed us because, listen, God has given each of us a command to go and to share the gospel and to live our lives as examples to those around us. And we're going to attempt to do all of those things to the glory of God. But there's going to be moments where we do things and it's we're going to fall flat on our face. And sometimes it may be because that's just God's purpose and plan in that situation. But other times it may mean that we need to go back and say, God, OK, what what did we do wrong here? What, what's the thing that we need to learn? Because this is exactly where they needed to be because Jesus had something very important to teach the disciples in this moment. It's the last thing that I want you to notice in this text is the answer determined. Because this is what all of this is about. Everything that we've been reading in these verses, everything, the reason that God allowed this young man to be possessed with this demonic spirit, The reason that God allowed all of that to happen for years and years, the reason that God allowed him to bring his son to his disciples and them to not be able to cast this demon out was so that Jesus could tell them this very thing in verses 20 and 21. Because he's going to teach them something about the power of faith. Look at what he says. He said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. He says, the littleness of your faith. Now some translations put unbelief there, and it's not so much unbelief because they believed in Christ. But their faith was just too small. Their faith was was minuscule in this moment. It's a more accurate understanding of what Jesus is saying. The littleness of your faith. Now compare this with what Jesus has said about other people, right? Remember the Roman centurion? When he came and and asked Jesus to come heal his son, he says, Truly I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And the Canaanite woman, he says, Woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as your wish. And your daughter was healed at once. So the first thing I want us to look in this text is, is the problem of little faith. Because Jesus said the reason they could not cast out this demon was because their faith was too small. So what we understand is, is that if our faith is too small, then we can't do the things that God has called us to do. If our faith is too little, we can't accomplish the purposes that God has us here for. But the interesting question is, how little of faith is too little? Because it's not, it's not about the size of the faith. It's about the focus of our faith. Because Jesus goes on to say, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. Now the mustard seed, Jesus has already used this analogy before, because it's the smallest of all the seeds in the land. So Jesus is saying, disciples, you had too little faith. But if you had the faith the size of a mustard seed, then you could move mountains. Because there's a problem of little faith when our focus is on the wrong place. What is the source of our faith? What is the the object of our faith? If the object of our faith is on anything else but Christ, then our faith is too small. If it's on obtaining things or doing things or even upon ourselves, if, if the disciples are focused and say, okay, well, God has given me this power, so I believe because I have this power that faith is going to be ineffective. But Jesus says that there's potential in that little faith. 
The reason that Jesus often used this mustard seed analogy was because even though the mustard seed was the smallest of all the known seeds in the land, when he planted it, it would grow into a tree tall enough in one season that it says that the birds of the air could nest there. So it's something that's very small but has great potential to grow very quickly and very powerfully. So there's a problem of little faith when the object is in the wrong place, but there's a potential with little faith because Jesus says if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. Again, to quote Matthew Poole, he said, God rewards a weak faith. To those laboring under the sense of their weakness and desiring an increase of strength. With this picture of the mustard seed as the smallest seed, Jesus is teaching that even the smallest minute amount of faith is enough if its object is on Him. The disciples were just focused in the wrong place. If they had put their focus on Jesus, they would have been able to cast the demon out of this young man, even with the smallest amount of faith. And Jesus says, with that smallest amount of faith, I will move through it and work in it to allow you to do great things for the kingdom of God. In fact, he says that you'll be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, Jesus is not saying, let's be very clear this morning. Jesus is not saying that any one of us has the power by our faith to walk out here and tell Balsam Mountain to move from one place and go to the other and that it will happen if you have enough faith. I've heard people say foolishness such as that. Jesus here is using a very clear analogy, right? He's not talking about actually moving mountains. We never see Jesus move a mountain. We never see the disciples move a mountain. Thankfully, God has given us bulldozers. If we need to move a mountain, we can do that very effectively doing it that way. What Jesus is saying here is that when you have an insurmountable problem, something that seems totally impossible in all realms of worldly understanding, he said, with your faith in me as the object of that faith, you can face those kinds of obstacles and overcome them through me. One commentator said this, expounding upon this idea of moving mountains. He said, a great teacher who could really expound and interpret Scripture and who could explain and resolve difficulties was regularly known as an uprooter or even a pulverizer of mountains. To tear up, to uproot, to pulverize mountains were all regular phrases for removing difficulties. Jesus never meant this to be taken physically and literally. After all, the ordinary man seldom finds any necessity to move a mountain. What he meant was, if you have faith enough... All difficulties can be solved, and even the hardest task can be accomplished. Faith in God is the instrument that allows men to remove the hills of difficulty which block their path. We can easily look at the disciples and their lives oftentimes. Maybe you're not guilty of this. I've been. And I look at the apostles. I look at the disciples, and I think, well, how much greater spiritually they must be. But here Jesus is telling them, guys, your faith is too small, and all it takes is the faith of the size of a mustard seed. But I've been convicted this week that oftentimes my faith in God is too small. That I don't believe with that faith of a mustard seed. That I don't believe that what Jesus says here is true. That we have the power to move these difficulties and objects out of the way. Not in our own strength, but through the source of His strength in faith in Him. 
But there's one last thing that I want you to look at. Turn over to the next page. Or turn over to the next verse. Verse 21. We find the power of this little faith. It says, but this kind does not go out by prayer and except by prayer and fasting. Now, the fasting portion of that verse is not found in, in most of the, of the, of the later uh, manuscripts. Uh, many people believe that that was added from another passage in Mark. The emphasis here is not so much on the fasting part, but upon the prayer part. Because it's the difference here in prayer is what separates those who have faith in the wrong object and faith in the right object. Because when we focus in prayer and we focus our lives upon where God wants us to be, that's what keeps us directed on the right path. Remember what James said, the effective prayer of a righteous man availeth much. In fact, Barnes said, if you have the smallest or feeble faith that is genuine, you can do all things. But it's directing ourselves through the power of prayer. Now, the disciples were with Jesus all the time. And they were hand in hand with him. They witnessed everything that he did. They're physically in contact with Jesus on a daily basis. And yet Jesus is telling them, the problem with your lack of faith is because you're not praying enough. The problem is because you're not spending enough time in prayer with the Father. Now, they're, they're living with Jesus, right? They're, they're camping out with Jesus, watching all these things, and he's telling them the power, the problem of the lack of your faith is a prayer problem. And how much more so it is for us that we don't pray enough, that we don't depend upon prayer. As I've told many of you before, I love reading Christian biographies, and I think about men like George Mueller, and great missionaries like Adrian Judson and Hudson Taylor. And you read their lives and you read their biographies and you find that these were men who were desperate for prayer, committed to prayer. Before anything else, they were going to be praying. Before they even fed themselves, they were going to be praying. If they were going to miss something during the day, it wasn't going to be their prayer time, it was going to be a meal. And sadly to say, sometimes we don't have that same level of priority in our own lives. As I said, the Lord just read my mail up one side and down the other this week. Because we talk about the condition of our world. We talk about the condition of our nation. We even talk about the things that are happening in our own county and the way things are changing. And we lament that fact, right? We know what the truth of the Scripture says. We know what the Bible says. And we say, okay, well, we want us to see God do something miraculous here. But the truth of whether we really believe that and whether we really want to see those kinds of things happen is not found in how loud we talk, but about how deeply we pray. If we really want to see God change Haywood County, it doesn't start with just talking about it. It starts with us committing to pray that God will change Haywood County. With us committing to pray that God will change the lives of the people who we're ministering to at the jails or ministering to on the streets or ministering to in our neighborhoods. And as we pray, we pray to align ourselves with God's will. And as we're doing that, you know what we're doing? We're focusing our faith on the right object. 
And Jesus says if we do that, that nothing will be able to stand in our way. Let us commit ourselves to be people of prayer. To be people of desperate prayer. Believing God to do what He said He's promised He's going to do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time this morning. Lord, we thank You for the work that You did in this young man's life as a testimony of Your compassion, of Your grace. But Father, we thank You for the lesson that was taught here to the disciples and to us of the power of faith and the necessity of prayer. And Lord, we pray that You would help us because Lord, we desperately need this in our lives. We need Your guidance. And Lord, we need faith. We need faith in You. We need faith that trusts in You and Your promises so that we can see Your kingdom's work accomplished. Lord, I confess that I have often failed in this area. But Father, I pray on my my own behalf and I pray for those who are here that Lord, we would commit ourselves each and every day to seeking Your face to pleading with You for the work of the kingdom that we may see Haywood County and North Carolina and this nation and the world changed by the power of the Gospel. And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.